Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur riding in on the Chattanooga Choo Choo. <laughs> woo woo! <laughs> and speaking of choo choos, uh, we have Choo Choo Chosen? That didn't quite work. A guest this week. Uh, oh, uh, nice. Mm, uh, you can't do cho- choose, but uh, yeah. Joining us, I think now officially makes you the guest with the most amount of appearances of all time on Spy Hards. Really? Oh, wow. Okay, that's that's definitely an honor. Uh, or, or dishonor. Uh, take it however you want. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are talking about spy movies. They involve a lot of uh, shame and disgrace. So, that is uh, true. I'll, I'll take it either way. <laughs> well, joining us once again... Mr. David Lowbridge, Ellis of the Licensed to Queer blog. Hello, sir. How are you doing? I'm really good, thank you. Thank you for inviting me on to talk about this film because it's a, a real passion of mine. I think this one came up on your last appearance. You sort of mentioned it off air at the end of the show and we were like, huh, well, yeah. we'll note this one down. And uh, lo and behold, we're here. I think you asked me, are there any spy movies that you'd like to talk about? And for some reason, this was the first one, that you know, more than Bond films or anything else. Because I thought, you know, Lots of there's there's lots of discussion about Bond, but then my mind went to this one. Um, so yeah, that that was quite a while ago, wasn't it? So we've been gearing up for this one. Yeah, I remember when you said it. I made an immediate note on our master list. So yeah, and and just for reference, then you're saying you're the one who pitched this as a spy film. I think I did. Yeah, if I remember correctly. Okay. Well, we'll note that down. But before we talk, contentious. Yeah, we'll come. We'll circle round on it. But before we uh, get to it, hop on the train. What have you been up to since you last been on the show, David? Oh my gosh, uh, I didn't come prepared for that answer. It's been a bit of a whirlwind, to be <laughs> honest. Um, I'm trying to remember when the last episode was a few months ago. But yeah, it's it's been uh, really busy. Um, lots of stuff obviously happening on the Licensed Square website. Uh, we've been trying. Last year, my resolution was to meet as many people in the flesh, as it were, uh, mm-hmm. from people I've got to know online. And I have failed thus far, Cam, to meet you. Uh, but Scott, <laughs> we've met numerous times, uh, and uh, each time of each time a pleasure, never a chore. And uh, yeah, we've we've had some really good times face to face as well. Uh, lots of other Bond fans. There's lots of. I don't think the 60th anniversary events had really kicked off for Bond the last time we talked, so there have been lots of those. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, I've done a few Bond influenced travel things, like we went to Cuba over New Year and Christmas. Uh, no, running up to New Year um, over Christmas, and um, so obviously lots of mojitos and. Oh. Um, uh, dodgy pronunciations of them as well and i've just got back uh, at the time of recording uh, from a, tri- a, a couple of days really nice days in edinburgh on a sleeper train uh, which was a very bondian experience so i'm trying to kind of process all that into some kind of article at the moment yeah so it's it's been busy Wow. So what was it like visiting the locations of Die Another Day? I have to know. Well, it, funny that because there aren't any lo- <laughs> there aren't <laughs> any locations. Well, there aren't many locations from Die Another Day because most of it's green screen or on a soundstage. Yeah. But um, uh, and that's no disparagement. I think it gives that film a, an interesting quality, shall we say. But the, in Cuba itself, they didn't shoot in Cuba. So it's really difficult to shoot in Cuba. Because obviously the government want to vet your script. Uh, they did actually, I believe, try to shoot Die Another Day in Cuba, but um, the, it was 
because of the embargo from the US that really made filming there really difficult at that time. Similar sort of story with No Time to Die, which has a cube sequence as well, although I think that was more to do with having a kind of controlled environment for a sequence that involved a lot of explosions and gunfire. And then uh, the, the, there's a brief bit of uh, Cuba in a couple of other Bond films as well. But there, the, when you're in Cuba, you can kind of see what they were trying to do in Die Another Day by, you know, shooting in Spain instead. Uh, but the architecture is very similar. So it does feel like you're in a sort of Die Another Day environment. But at the same time, Die Another Day presents Cuba as it was probably more like 50 years ago. Uh, whereas right. there's actually a lot of modern elements to Cuba. It feels very classic as well. But certainly, uh, I actually read the Raymond Benson novelization of Die Another Day while I was there, and it opens with something like, um, Bond felt ambivalently about Cuba because of all those communists. Um, and, <laughs> you know, I, 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 Cuba has its issues. It most definitely has its issues. Um, and there are lots of people who feel stifled and everything else. But it's, it is a very different country than it was uh, in, in most people's imaginations, you think of Cuba, and that's not really what Cuba feels like. And I need to know, did you rent a convertible like Bond had in Die Another Day? That would have been amazing. We we didn't rent one, apart from to take us around on a tour the first full day we were there, which is really, really good. But actually, about one in four cars looked like that in Cuba. I didn't think there'd be that many. Nice. So every time we took a taxi or something, there was a good chance that it'd be one of those cars. So every time, yeah, I had David Arnold's Cuban inflected music playing in my ears uh, and sometimes humming it aloud, much to my husband's annoyance. But uh, it, it was it was um, definitely an experience. And of all your sort of Bond travels, because there's been a few this last couple of years, but I'm sure there's been yeah. more in the past as well. Mm. What's been your favourite location to visit? Oh, God. Again, I really wish I prepared an answer for this one. Um, I really enjoyed although it doesn't appear that much in the film i really enjoyed going to new orleans which appears in live and mm. let die because we actually got to recreate the uh whose funeral is it yours um we we got to recreate that with a couple of our friends who are from the usa uh, so that was a that was a really special experience I would, I would uh, love to go. That's actually been on my list of places to go. And I suppose last question, because uh, you're unprepared, so I'm just going to throw these curveballs at you now. <laughs> yeah, go for it. On the license to queer front, what have you got coming up at the moment? What, what are you sort of working on? Uh, I'm working on an article, as I say, about sleeper trains. I'm trying to decide what to do my next queer review on. Those are always massive, uh, in-depth treatments of movies. And I've got, I think, seven of the films left to do. So uh, that's that's going to take a little while. I've, I actually keep a list of um, articles to write. And every time I write an article, I think, right, let's go back to the, the document of stuff I want to write about. And I think, oh, I can tick that one off. But then I realise I've actually added three more on in the meantime. So there's about 25 articles of, about things I want to write at the moment. When I started this originally nearly three years ago, I thought, uh, you know, I'll do an article for each film, a bit about the books, and that'll be it. Um, and then a quarter of a million words later, we're still going uh, with a with a with a lot left still to cover. So it's uh, it's definitely been a project, but I'm enjoying every single second of it. And I'm particularly still enjoying um, 
reading other others' contributions. I've got some more podcasts lined up with some other people. I'm really enjoying looking back at some of the scripts for the fil- for versions of the films that didn't get made. So we mm-hmm. d- I did one with Tom Mason recently about uh, the versions of Diamonds Are Forever, because, of course, you know how much I admire that film. It's a sleazy joy. And uh, it was even sleazier in some of the earlier versions. So we're, we're going to tackle a couple more of those films as well. Definitely at least two more Bond films we're going to do that for. And uh, they seem to be very popular, those podcasts, so we might do a few more of those. Nice. I'm always curious when you write these, you know, reviews of the Bond films, of the ones you've done, what was the most challenging one to write? Uh, the ones that are most challenging are probably the ones that end up being very personal and they spark off really personal things. I actually think the most difficult ones to write were probably Quantum of Solace because I ended up going down a whole route of um, uh, kind of trauma and how that then influences your life and how... Bond, what Bond goes through in that film can be a sort of analogy for whatever trauma you've been through. Uh, so that one got very, very psychological. Uh, but I think probably of all of them, the most recent one, Skyfall, was the most challenging, which, of course, you've done your uh, in-depth review of, uh, which is uh, fantastic as well with, with Catherine. Um, that, there's something about that film. I noticed that episode was a bit longer than your, your normal episodes, um, even though the film itself is quite a bit longer. And something about that film, whether you actually like that film or not, and I'm not a huge fan of Skyfall in all in all truth. Uh, it's never I've never really warmed to it that much. But there's something about that film that just has so much to talk about in it. So I ended up writing about twenty thousand words, and a lot of that was really really personal stuff. Um, and it was it, I purpose I put it off for about five months from start to finish. It took me a very very long time to finish, but. Um, I've got some really, really positive feedback on it from a lot of different people, both publicly and privately. And so it all makes it worth it, really. There's some Bond films, like, when you podcast about them, they can go very long. Like, we had you on to talk about Casino Royale 67. Yeah. And there's so much to talk about because of just what a train wreck disaster the entire production was. But with some Bond films, they're just so dense in terms of just the text of the movie. And I think Skyfall very much applies. You know, not the case, like, I'm sure when we're doing Moonraker, we have a blast, but you don't need, you know, two plus hours to break down the themes of Moonraker. Possibly not. No, there's not a great deal of psychological depth to those, although those ones tend to end up going down a more sort of historical route. So what was going on in the late 1970s? So there was a lot of backlash against uh, queer rights in the 1970s, and that definitely affected Spy Who Loved Me. I haven't actually got round to Moonraker yet, so I'll be interested to see where that goes. Uh, The thing that I'm looking forward to digging into with Moonraker, though, is how it kind of represents... um, uh, it, it, the sort of biblical illusions in there and the way that Drax is trying to repopulate the earth with men and women and there's there's no space for otherness there, particularly because Jaws is, you know, presumably not going to be able to live in this world with his dolly because they're too different, they're too other. So uh, I think that's probably going to be the angle I'm going to take. But in all honesty, when I start one of those things, I have no idea where it's going to go. And by the end, I look back and I go, whoa, OK, I didn't expect to get there. So it's always a journey of discovery for me as well as the reader. Well, it's uh, it's interesting. You know, you said it was about 20,000 words. That's, that's half of so that's double what my dissertation is, is looking out to be at the moment. So kudos to you for pulling together 20,000 words on on the film. That's a it's definitely a personal thing then for you to find that sort of voice and, and, and story to tell. Yeah, the proofreading is an absolute pain in the backside. (laughs) (laughs) 
But uh, Cam, you mentioned uh, a word there, train wrecks, which I think is very uh, interesting because yeah. I think it's about time we hopped on board the train. What are we talking about this week? I'm loving your links, by the way, Scott. They're, they're just <laughs> they're seamless. Absolutely seamless. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we are talking about 1926's The General, starring Buster Keaton. I There's so much to unpack with this. I've got a lot to say. I think we've all got a lot to say. And yet it's probably the shortest film we've ever tackled. Uh, I don't... It depends what version you watched. I guess maybe that's just a question up front. How long was the version that each of you watched? Well, the version of X 2 that I watched was about five minutes long. So that may have been the shortest, <laughs> but that was by personal choice. Right, right, yes. Mm. Uh, I watched an a, a 80 minute version or just, just shy of 80 minutes. Same here. Yeah, I think most versions are 80 minutes. It does depend. In the US, obviously, films tend to run longer uh, because of the speed up, which I don't really understand, but the speed up that you get um, with PAL versions. So things are one frame a second faster. So mine might have been about an hour 15. I actually I watched a DVD version of it, rather, uh, but I know that this, I think it's worth saying this up front as well. If um, this is one of those films that's quite easy to get hold of online because mm-hmm. it's i'm not even sure it's, it might even be out of copyright for some reason but uh it's not quite old enough i don't believe but yeah the the youtube version i think runs a runs a few minutes longer because it doesn't have that that dvd speed up issue that we have here in the uk i know there's also shorter cuts of the movie that about about 67 minutes you, if you look up on imdb there's a long list of different versions and the lengths of them i can't even tell you what the length was the first time i saw the movie well, there'll be a link in the show notes below if you want. If you haven't seen the film and you want to check out the YouTube version, there's a few different versions on YouTube, to be fair. But I think before we start to unpack this, uh, this train, let's get the letterbox.com synopsis. The General. Buster drives the General to train loads of laughter. <laughs> hmm. uh, a little more. During America's Civil War... Union spies steal engineer Johnny Gray's beloved locomotive, the General. With Johnny's lady love aboard an attached box car, and he single-handedly must do all in his power to both get the General back and to rescue Annabelle. Hmm. Well, you know what? Sometimes um, it's better to be silent than to try to uh, break it down into words. <laughs> I never knew the uh, synopsis would be as long as the film. Mm, yes, yeah, true. Mm. Uh, I think it's uh, interesting to point out as well, this is our first ever silent movie. Yeah. Never done one of those. Not many on the list. No. Uh, I think there's one other maybe, one or two. Although this isn't our first um, spy movie dealing with the American Civil War. Uh, no, and we have one coming up in the not too far off distant future based on the exact same story of this movie. Fantastic. Okay, oh, wow. okay. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Fine. Well. I suppose then let's sort of chart our connections to the film. I'll make it easy. I'd never seen it. I'd never seen a single Buster Keaton film, and I'd only ever seen one silent movie in my life, and that was Metropolis. That hurt. Ugh. Ugh. You didn't like Metropolis? It was. I watched <laughs> like the three-hour cut, and I was oh, sat right, on my like okay. wooden bench, park bench watching it. It was the most oh, uncomfortable right, okay. three hours of my life. That's fair. I'm, I'm sure it would be a very different experience if you'd seen it like in an uh, art house theater or something. Yeah, with a drink maybe or some fresh air. Yeah, that that yeah. maybe would have been nice. But um, I'll, I'll throw it to you, David. Where did you first get connected with the general? This is probably the first film I ever remember seeing, which is a bit of an oh, odd wow. one for a 
five. I think I was five years old when I saw this film for the first time. I'm sure I, I must have watched things before then, um, like Thomas the Tank Engine and Transformers, both of which were my obsessions as a as a small kid. And I think it was probably Thomas the Tank Engine that led to me loving trains, which I still have a love for nowadays. I, w I went through a brief period in my teenage years where it wasn't cool to like trains. So if you've seen Paddington 2, where the son of the family says he doesn't like trains because they're not cool, I went through that phase. But it was a fairly brief phase and the love of trains came back. So I basically watched anything with a train in it. And as a five-year-old, you don't really understand, I don't think, the difference between a silent movie and a black and white movie and a colour film and that sort of thing. So for me, it was just a film. And I think possibly because so much of the story is told visually, even if you didn't have the intertitles with the dialogue on, you could probably still get a decent sense of the story. And mm. I think probably that's why I really enjoyed it as a five-year-old, because the story is not that complicated and you can follow it and it's got a really kind of simple structure. So, yeah, I just loved it because it featured a lot of trains. Um, I don't know if I found it as funny as I did as an adult. I genuinely find this film very, very funny. Um, it's definitely turned me into a Buster Keaton fan when I was getting into cinema um, in, the, in my late teens and early 20s. Uh, and I've subsequently shown this film to students I've taught and I've used it as their introduction to silent film and a way of exploring that period. And it, every time I've kind of been a bit nervous thinking, oh, God, they're going to hate this. They're going to find it boring. And, you know, I'm sure, you know, all, all viewpoints respected here. Uh, but um, t to date, no one no one has. Um, you know, there are there are a lot of silent films which are a slog to get through. If I'm honest, I I do watch quite a few silent films, but. You know, you can see why sound was invented <laughs> um, in in a lot of those <laughs> cases. But um, this one is not one of those. For me, I think it's, I just think it's an incredible film. Just don't show the kids Metropolis, I beg you. Definitely not the three-hour version, no. No, 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 no. And what about you, Cam? Uh, so this was a movie that I saw when I started my journey of exploring kind of the history of film. So I'd gone through, I'm sure, a lot of the big studio stuff of like the 70s and 60s and whatever, you know, I'd seen The Godfather and all those types of movies, 2001. And I had also watched a lot of Chaplin. I believe I started with Chaplin in terms of sort of the silent comedy stuff. I had watched Metropolis, Nosferatu, some silent films like that. But I believe I started with Chaplin, went through like six or seven of those. And then Buster Keaton was the obvious next choice. And I started with The General. And I enjoyed it so much i immediately went out and i rented it from the library and you joined the confederate army <laughs> no no we'll, we'll come back to that scott we'll come back to that um but no i immediately went out and rented steamboat bill jr with buster keaton and i think to this point i've seen about maybe seven or eight of his films something like that um and had some really great experiences i remember going to a 24-hour film festival um, at the Cinematheque Theatre here in Vancouver where they play kind of 24 hours of, you know, cult films, art house films, all that sort of stuff. And they mm -hmm. actually opened it with um, Buster Keaton's Sherlock Jr. So I've been lucky enough to actually see them on the big screen. I would love to see the general on the big screen. But yeah, I was a big fan when I first saw this one. It's, it's interesting because I was also a massive train nut. So I can really resonate with, with David there. I was uh, way into my Thomas Tank engine. For my fifth birthday, they took me to a... Uh, 
a real train line place where they had Thomas and and you could ride on Thomas. And I, I, there's some very fun photos of me as a very young lad on Thomas the Tank Engine having the biggest and bestest birthday I think I've ever had. And by lad, you say about two years ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It, they, they color photos. It's actually HD video, let's be fair. <laughs> 4k <laughs> i'm just like hoot, hoot. <laughs> yeah um okay well it, it's it's interesting we're all kind of coming at this from different places like very young age cam in his mid-teens which was around about the time this film was released true and then and then now precisely so let's um let's let's uh look at how we got here cam do you have any stories for us yeah so this was based on the real life uh, event that happened during the civil war in the spring of 1862, when James uh, J. Andrews from the Union um, hijacked a train and essentially attempted to do what happens in this film, which was disrupt the supply lines and help the North win the war. And they, he was pursued in his efforts by a Confederate conductor named William Fuller, who is, I think, you know, ultimately the inspiration for the Buster Keaton character. And those Union soldiers were later awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor for their efforts. And it spawned a book by an author named William Pittenger in 1889, who wrote about it. And he called the book The Great Locomotive Chase, which is maybe a hint of the movie we will tackle in the uh, not-too-far-off future. I see. And yes, and the book was told from the point of view of the Union. It was very much a Union story. Mm -hmm. So that's something that will change over the development of this story. Um but this book came across the attention of writer-director Clyde Bruckman, who was a collaborator of Keaton's, and he'd gotten his start early in the nine in 1919, um, writing and directing shorts. He would go on to uh, you know write on movies like Sherlock Jr., Our Hospitality, um, Seven Chances with Buster Keaton, close collaborator, um, and. He would ultimately have a lot of issues with alcoholism. And even during all of these various phases, Buster Keaton would constantly lend him support and get him work. You know, he was directing episodes of the Buster Keaton show in the 1950s. So they had a very close collaboration. And Clyde Bruckman was considered like one of the great kind of gag writers of his time and would also work with people like the Three Stooges, Laurel and Hardy, and also Harold Lloyd. Harold Lloyd, maybe not a name that people recognize, but another great silent comedy figure. People will all know the shot, though, from his best movie, Safety Last, where he hangs from the clock um, hand over a city. Yep. It's used in all those compilations you ever see about classic films. So that's Harold Lloyd. But Clyde Bruckman had this book, brought it to Buster Keaton, and Buster Keaton fell in love with it because they both shared a love of trains and just really wanted to do a lot of stunts involving trains. I think, Scott, you can relate to this, and David, too. Well, I haven't jumped on the front of a train, yeah. so I can't relate in that sense. But uh, no, I, I, I mean, trains are absolutely fantastic beasts when you think about it, what they, what they can do. And like, just, I mean, uh, well, here's a, here's a nerdy question that I'm sure some of the listeners will, will want to have asked and they can let us know online. But David, do you have a favorite train? An actual, like, specific train, like a named train? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mean I do? You mean beyond Thomas the Tank Engine? Well, he he could be your train if you like, but you can go anywhere you want. Um, 
I wouldn't necessarily say a named like locomotive. You mean like Flying Scotsman or something like that? The Flying Scotsman is always the one. I, I've I've seen the Flying Scotsman. Have uh, you? I, I I wish to ride on the Flying Scotsman at some point, but uh, yeah, that's a hell of a train that is. Okay, now I don't know if I do actually have a specific locomotive. I live fairly close, and I've always lived fairly close to the Seven Valley Railway. Mm-hmm. So if you're ever up in the Midlands, we'll have a nice day out on the trains, Scott. Cam, you're welcome to. Um, <laughs> you, you can feign enthusiasm as we nerd out um, <laughs> on the trains going past. So I got kind of familiar with like the num the different numbered trains on those and and all that. But mm-hmm. um, no, I can't say I, I love a name train. So was yours the Flying Scotsman or was there another one? No, it's the Flying Scotsman. I always it go is back the to. Is, is there is there maybe like a a, a train in film? That you that you go back to, except for the general itself, perhaps. Yeah, it probably is the general. To be honest, that's my kind of touchstone for the film. Although my favourite other train film, which this film references without getting too far ahead in its final, especially in its final sequences, is uh, the much maligned and I think uh, unfairly uh, the Lone Ranger. Oh yeah, which has a lot of train action in the final act. Mm-hmm. So that's probably my second favourite representation of trains on screen. And obviously, it appears in lots of Bond films. There are lots of trains in Bond films, too. You both just reminded me that many years ago, I wrote an article of the top five train movies. Oh, <laughs> wow. wow. I completely forgot that I wrote that. But as soon what as else you was two... on there? Oh, Narrow Margin was on there. Murder on the Orient Express was on there. Sure. Um, I think the Burt Lancaster film, The Train, might have been on there. It might have been. Oh, I've never seen that. Is it good? It is good. Yeah, it's worth checking out. Yeah. I will put a link to that story uh, that I wrote, that list, uh, in the show notes for this one. We'll look forward to that. Um, I'd also say Unstoppable, quite a recent one, but that's Yeah, that was film. good. Yeah, that was good. Yeah. Taking yeah, a yeah. Pelham 123 is amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I actually really like um, uh, the, the bit, film The Peacemaker's all right, but the opening sequence is brilliant. I love that heist that takes place. A heist on a train is always good. Definitely. I actually watched um I watched Bullet Train recently, which I wasn't expecting yeah. to enjoy. Perhaps because I was on a plane to Japan at the time, I was kind of in the right mood. But um, I really enjoyed <laughs> that as well. It's a solid film. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I thought it was really good. Yeah, that was a fun movie as well. When the train is a character in the movie, I think that mm. makes a big difference. And mm. Bullet Train definitely pulled that off. I mean, Cam is a total diesel, I have to say. <laughs> a total <laughs> thanks, diesel. Thanks, Scott. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess if I were to answer my favorite train... It's the train in Disneyland. That's an easy answer for me. Oh, okay. I don't, I don't want to give you that. Casey Jr. How many trains roll through not only the Grand Canyon, but also ancient dinosaur land? I mean, come on. Yeah, I, I, okay. Well, Disneyland fans may agree with you. I've never been. That's right. That's right. Well, I recommend you both uh, go and ride the train. Well, D- Disney adored trains. That's why. He had, a, he had a model train in his garden. And then he decided when he made a bigger garden for everyone to come into, he uh, he decided to stick trains in uh, in there. Do you know the Disney parks in the world which don't have trains? This is getting really nerdy now. No, I don't. I want to hear it. So Tokyo Disney Sea doesn't have one. Uh, it has a tramway. Yeah. And that's part of the re- the reason is if you have a circular train in Japan, a loop of a train, you have to charge entry for it. So they couldn't put oh. a circular train in the Japanese Disney parks because Japanese law says you have to treat it as a as a like a, a paved railway, which wouldn't really work in a Disney park. Huh. Oh, fascinating. That's bored that's bored you senseless. <laughs> no, no. More fun train facts on the way. 
I love that this has turned into train trivia. That's amazing. <laughs> Let's keep going. <laughs> so speaking of people that love trains, Buster Keaton, of course, loved trains and wanted to make this project. And legendary figure in film, but people that don't know, he was born in Kansas. His parents were vaudevillian comedians who ran a very successful variety act. He obviously got a lot of training just having parents in that industry and sure. working as a child with them. They were close friends of Harry Houdini who gave Buster Keaton his name Buster when he impressed him at three years old doing a pratfall down a series of stairs. And at that point, he became known as Buster Keaton. So this guy had a very interesting life. Uh, I would recommend people just go out and buy a book, like a biography of Buster Keaton. It's far more insightful than anything I can really detail here. But a chance meeting basically with the comedian Fatty Arbuckle, another fascinating figure of the silent era, also could... I'm sure, um, lead to a very interesting read of a book as well. But Buster Keaton ran into him, and he appeared in a um, Fatty Arbuckle short called The Butcher Boy in 1917. That was sort of his breakthrough into film. And he worked on a lot of Fatty Arbuckle films, and at a certain point co-directed um, a couple of them with Fatty Arbuckle. And when Fatty Arbuckle started to move into like full major films, uh, Buster Keaton took over Arbuckle's studio and began co-directing his own films, beginning with One Week, um, which was a short, and then in 1923, the full-length film, um, Three Ages. And he made his movies independently, and then they would be sold off for distribution. So Buster Keaton had a lot of control and really just kept on directing himself um, throughout a long run of his movies, right until 1929, where he did the movie Spite Marriage. And that marked his final co-directing effort. That one, it was kind of an issue where sound had come into vogue. Mm -hmm. So the idea of him making silent films, especially the type you see like the general, just not really the case. And also his um, uh, collaborator, who I believe was his brother-in-law, I think, uh, Joseph Schneck, who was uh, also the um, president of Buster Keaton Productions, took over United Artists and helped fund the general. And also got Buster Keaton a big stage, but at a certain point negotiated for Buster Keaton to get a contract with MGM that did not go well. Buster Keaton was very unhappy working for a major studio with a lot of control over what he was doing. He did make some good movies. The Cameraman is a masterpiece, but it really didn't lead to a long career making the kind of stuff he loved at a certain point. He worked consistently, but he wasn't very happy with a lot of the films he made past kind of that 1929 point. Why is that? Well, it's like the sound era is dead, and he's a silent comedian, so he's not playing to his strengths anymore. And he does direct a few kind of like random movies, nothing particularly classic. And he's just used a lot of times as sort of almost like a prop figure in a lot of movies. Like, hey, look, it's Buster Keaton. So, yeah. Like Sophia Loren in Operation Crossbow. Well, <laughs> a little bit, yeah, yeah, because you're right. She was like first build and is barely in the movie. That sort of thing, yeah. Stunt casting, in a sense. Yeah, and literally stunt casting. I saw someone post, um, I meant to um, save it actually, but I saw someone post online the other day. It was a film from the 1940s where Buster Keaton was only cast in it because he was the only person. They couldn't use a stuntman to do this fall, um, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. he would he'd be prepared to do it. I mean, Buster Keaton did some astoundingly dangerous things in his career. You may have seen the clip where 
and he has a house literally fall on him and he just happens to be standing in the exact same right spot like the window where it's not going to kill him you know he actually shot he actually shot that um on a day where he was feeling really depressed and um he's actually said that he, he it was only because he didn't really care if he lived or died that he was brave he kind of did that stunt so um yeah he did some really really crazy stuff and you know some stuff in the general as well but um he um uh, he then did he was basically if you need a someone to do a sewer fall or something in a movie where you need to be able to show the actor's face you, you can't use a stunt person in the decades before digital face replacement and all that kind of thing or when you get someone vaguely looking like roger moore to s jump on a train in octopussy <laughs> then you you know you got buster keaton and he did appear in a few cameos so he's in he's at least i think he's in sunset boulevard as one of mm -hmm. the yep. one of the one of the background players as well but it's kind of a sad role though, is. because like in that one yeah gloria yeah. swanson is the star of sunset boulevard and she's like a forgotten silent star mm. and someone who's essentially become unraveled because of the loss of her fame yeah and she has a scene where she's playing cards with all of her friends who've also been forgotten and buster keaton is one of them so he he's he's playing a washed up actor basically yeah part of the reason for yeah. it i can't help thinking i'm no i'm no expert um is but I think the the general because it underperformed at the box office. I know you're going to talk about this in a minute. I think mm. that contributed to his his decline as well. And obviously, this is one of the very last films to be in the silent era. And and as we know from Singing in the Rain, a lot of people really found it difficult to manage that transition from um, from silent films to sound. And I just remember reading an anecdote. Um, I believe it was a Roger Ebert. Um, article where he was just talking about you know Chaplin at an older age coming out and just like whole theaters in applause for you know the legend of Chaplin being in the room and whereas like you know you look at Buster Cre uh, Keaton later in life Scott we tackled Muscle Beach Party um, on the Patreon you know the Frankie Nanette Beach movie he was showing up in those like some of the later films but uh, you know later into the 60s like he wasn't as revered like as Chaplin was or just even at the time by a lot of people I mean, I, I don't want to like jump onto your sort of upcoming story, but just to contextualize it a little bit, obviously we'll look at what happened with the general, but you say that, you know, sound had become a part of films now. So it was, was the general out of vogue? Not at that point. Cause sound comes out in 1928. Okay. Um, I think it's, yeah, I think it's 28 with the jazz singer. And so that really causes the uh, kind of the collapse of a lot of the silent film industry very quickly. Right. Okay. I think it's worth saying as well that um, a, a lot of the films that were uh, the first films to be made with sound were actually visually nowhere near as interesting as the, the as the films from this period. Because to the adjective, if you have seen Seeing the Rain, you'll you know they satirize how clunky the technology was for recording sound, mm -hmm. and because of that, the camera often had to remain a lot more static. You simply could not have made this film two years later. Because you, the expectation would have been there to have put sound in it. And the camera is so fluid in this film, there'd be absolutely no chance. So it's very much kind of like the peak of the silent film period when people were being very inventive with camera movement. And then for about, you know, five or six years, probably even longer than that, after sound was introduced, camera movement becomes far less interesting. And if you watch like early talkies, 
there's a lot of scenes of like actors kind of um, hanging out around plants yeah. and things like that because they'd have to hide microphones around the set often because just the early sound technology, as David said, was not where it is now for sure. And so there's a lot of scenes of just like actors very static, very still, basically standing in one place so they can get their dialogue heard by very early microphones. So you compare that to like the virtuoso physical stuff going on in Chaplin or Keaton or Harold Lloyd. And it's just like that would not have even worked with sound at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And so this movie, yes, it was quite expensive. Um, the budget, obviously, United Artists was on board, and they were willing to pay. This movie had historically accurate locomotives, sets, and costumes, a massive cast of extras, and even the shot of the fa the famous shot of the train going off the bridge apparently cost forty two thousand dollars, making it the most expensive shot of all time at that particular moment. I I could buy it. I can buy it. Yeah, and so like the budget. It seems like it was about $750,000, and the movie domestically earned um, $474,000. What? Why? What? <laughs> Where was everyone? The movie was not received well. It was not no. well-reviewed, no. and people had become very accustomed to the comedic hijinks of Buster Keaton. His other movies are very funny and very like gag-based. And this one was a little more dramatic, and people were not accepting of it. Wow, okay. The difference in audience expectation. So he explicitly wanted to make something that didn't necessarily have that great deal of psychological depth, although it's got some really interesting kind of characterizations. But it, it is a sort of realistic story. So if you compare this with the film he made a few years earlier, which, again, Scott, you'd love because it's full of trains. There's a brilliant sequence um, in Go West when um uh, the 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 train is basically almost like a roller coaster and the rails are like that they go up and down in peaks and troughs and you don't get anything like that in the general because this is ostensibly a realistic film yes the sure. physics of everything can mad and but the thing is Buster Keaton is actually doing those things for real most of the time well all of the time for that matter without much involved with camera trickery and so forth but he he as as um as Cam said they did used to be kind of more um, obvious gags, something that you might find in like an animated short. I mean, Steamboat Bill, the which is one of my favourites of his of his films, was basically ripped off by Disney for um, for Steamboat Willie. Yeah. So um, there's there's definite elements of those of those stories which are similar. So his earlier films are a bit more like animated movies, just with real people, whereas this is not really like that, and audiences would we're not used to that yeah and there was also the decision to make it based around confederate heroes yes whereas the book was written about the union and so that was very controversial because birth of a nation had come out about a decade before this movie and also incredibly controversial that is a movie that uh you know what watch spike lee's black klansman that'll tell you what you need to know about um birth of a nation but that also kind of dogged this movie at the box office as well. There was a lot of critics not happy about that change. And it's weird because Buster Keaton at the time apparently feared audiences wouldn't accept the Southerners as villains. But it's just an interesting, I guess, decision made in the 1920s, the way that he viewed an audience at that time versus our thoughts now. Maybe we'll unpack that 
slightly further on in the review, but it is an interesting choice. I'd read something different to what you just said about why he chose to, to change it around. So uh, maybe we'll circle back. Mm. Yeah, for sure. The top three for the year, and I take this with a grain of salt because I'm not that certain the 1920s box office tracking was uh, particularly up to snuff, but apparently the top three were, number one was called What Price Glory, which was a war film directed by Raoul Walsh. Mm -hmm. Number two was Beau Jest, uh, which was a book adaptation about the French Foreign Legion. And number three was Don Juan, which was an adventure film starring John Barrymore. And a couple final notes. Um, The... uh, Writer-director Clyde Bruckman, who was responsible for getting this project through to Buster Keaton, ultimately um, succumbed to alcoholism and borrowed a gun from Buster Keaton and shot himself at the age of 60 after eating a meal he couldn't pay for. And this sort of became Hollywood legend and actually inspired an X-Files episode called Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose, starring Peter Boyle, who won an Emmy for that performance. Incredible episode, but very sad story for Clyde Bruckman. Wow. Okay. I do think it, I know you mentioned it earlier, Cam, but I, I, I genuinely believe, you know, you, you look back on your heroes and sometimes you find skeletons in the closet and deeply unpleasant things. You don't really get that unless I've missed something. Uh, you don't really get that with Buster Keaton. He's a really, I mean, Fatty Arbuckle, he's a early collaborator was, uh, nowadays we'd perhaps use the parlance cancelled, um, after, after a, um, a scandal. Uh, but, Keaton himself appears to have been a really, really nice guy, prone to bouts of depression and mental ill health and, um, you know, everything. I think he had a period of alcoholism as well after um, his career um, floundered, but he was really, really charitable to his contributors and sometimes, like, put himself down the credits and put them up the credits so that it would help their careers. So even though a lot of things are, you know, I'm not diminishing the contribution of people like Clyde Brookman, uh, but he was basically keeping them, um, he, he was keeping them afloat, really, and, and, and supporting um, them, even though he was the big name star. And there was some more tragedy with collaborators on this film, because there was another writer who I accidentally glossed over earlier, but Al Boisberg, who contributed to the screenplay for the film or came up with scenarios with them who worked with Buster Keaton a lot on movies like The General, The Cameraman, and also worked with Harold Lloyd a bit, and had some credits on things like Night at the Opera, the Marx Brothers film. But he died at the age of 44 of a heart attack. And so, like, the people that worked on The General, at least in terms of Buster Keaton's collaborators, really had some tragedies surrounding them. But, you know, that's also, to a certain degree, kind of expected of that era. Often when we we tackle movies of these older eras, Scott, we find a lot of the people that made them died at very young ages, but mm-hmm. definitely the case here. I'm uh, I'm fascinated to sort of look into Buster Keaton after this and sort of seeing mm-hmm. this film. So I, I'll, uh, I'll maybe I'll put a list together of films of his I should check out afterwards. Yeah, there's a, I can give you an easy one. Yeah, just one more thing about Keaton, really, before um, you know we get into the specifics. The a lot of I do remember um, a lot of the reviews at the time criticized him for not having much in the way of facial expressions. So they called him the great stone face. Uh, Certainly compared to that was sort of his shtick that marked him out as different from Harold Lloyd and certainly Charlie Chaplin, because Charlie Chaplin always has a very expressive face. And some of the reviewers were saying he doesn't, because he doesn't emote on his face much, that he it's not suited for a film of this type, which is not just gag after gag after gag. 
where there is actually a story and there are characters and there's a romantic plot and so so on. Um, I don't buy that, incidentally. I think he he's incredibly expressive. It's just there's such subtle movements of his face. And also, I think because he is so deadpan most of the time, it just makes everything funnier because there is there is a sadness there to basically every character he ever plays that all these things just are happening to him and he has to just kind of get on with it, um, which I, I think that's probably why I'm always drawn to him more than controversially more than Charlie Chaplin. Now, I like Charlie Chaplin movies a lot, but if I were if I had to choose whether to put on a Buster Keaton or a Charlie Chaplin movie, um, I would most of the time choose a Buster Keaton movie over a Charlie Chaplin one. I always wonder with Buster Keaton, when we look at his work, we see like the subtlety to what he's doing in yeah. his performance. But would that have come across in like 1920s projection in a theater? Possibly that, not. That's often what I wonder. Yeah. And just a couple of final notes to wrap us up. The story that fueled the general would be basically remade or readapted twice more in 1948's A Southern Yankee, which is on our list to cover, as well as the 1956 Disney film The Great Locomotive Chase. Well, uh, that one may be a little sooner than expected, folks. And just lastly, The General, not well received at the time, not particularly successful, reappraised in the early 1960s, uh, just a few years before Buster Keaton died at the age of 66, uh, at the age of 70 of uh, lung cancer. And he was at least alive to have that kind of groundswell of support for the movie, a movie that he always held up as his favorite movie he'd ever made. Okay, good. I'm glad it had that turnaround. I'm glad he got to see the, at least the beginnings of that because uh, I think maybe we'll get into that, but yeah. There was a very late stage of his career recognition, wasn't there? I think it was a Venice Film Festival or quite a few film festivals. Which suddenly there was a resurgence of interest in Buster Keaton from the the younger generation of filmmakers. So there is a, a sort of happy coda to his life story. And you just look at the influence he cast, you know, Jackie Chan... Um, has credited Buster Keaton as being just so important to him. And you've had various people kind of follow in the footsteps. I'm sorry, when I watched the uh, trailer for Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, and I see all this stuff with Tom yeah. Cruise on a train, yeah. it's pretty clear that it's Tom Cruise general. at this point in his life, who has become this man who wants to put his life on the line for all of these grand stunts, he's looking at kind of solidifying his legacy in a way that kind of echoes back to Hollywood's early days. Yeah. Totally agree. There's a reason why that train in the in the Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning um, trailer uh, is is an old timey train. Uh, as a train fan, I should know more specifics here. I feel uh, so. Please chip in, Scott, <laughs> uh, at any point. But I'm just like, no, why old timey train? We're keeping it. That's uh, that's staying in. <laughs> why have they chosen such an old timey train? Because it's an homage to the general. Wow. There you go. Well. Uh... We'll see what happens later this year when uh, Dead Reckoning comes out. I would love it if it was just a straight remake of this movie. Yeah, yeah that would be great, actually. <laughs> In including all the, the Union soldiers and everything. Yeah, running one direction, then running back the other way. Yeah, okay. Well, speaking of, it's about time we enlisted in the army. Let's talk about the general. David, you're our guest. You're the man who has loved this film the longest out of the three of us. What do you think of the general in the year 2023? I think it just gets better with every year, perhaps for some of the reasons we've outlined. I think we're probably more appreciative of some of the some of the artistic decisions in this movie. I think it's a it's 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 a, it, I find it a genuinely very funny film, also quite a heartwarming film and also ultimately quite a sad film. 
So it's kind of got all those things mixed together. And I think part of the reason for the lack, relative lack, it wasn't a box office bomb, but it you know it made its money back internationally. But I think part of that is because it does make you feel a little bit awkward at times. I mean, the film leads you in. I love, you know, obviously my shtick with James Bond is, is um, taking a queer approach to things and trying to work out why queer people like James Bond. And watching this again ahead of recording this podcast, I was not only watching it thinking, right, this is a spy film. I've got to note down everything that makes it a spy film. I was also doing what I kind of do with James Bond and finding those queer elements and thinking, why have I loved this film for the last 35 years? Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of it is because the character is such an unstereotypically heroic man that I think a lot of people who don't identify with more alpha male, stupid term, I know, but those sorts of characters, I think perhaps we can identify with him so ultimately, this guy has one, lo- well, he has two loves in his life, we're told right at the start of the film. One is the person he's, uh, the, the, the woman he, he, he loves, and the other is his train. And let's be honest, he probably loves the train more <laughs> because he's drawn into this film, because, into this story, when a bunch, his beloved train, um, who he treats almost like a you know a big dog or something like that or a lover or whatever he really really loves his train and he's drawn into this adventure because he doesn't like the idea of his train being taken away by the enemy oh um accidentally along the way um his girlfriend is brought into it he doesn't realize she's also um on the train so it is she she's in the she's along for the ride but she herself is such a great character and she has so much agency for a female character in 1926 or indeed many movies nowadays. She's a great character in her own right. So by the end of the film, she, we know she's she's earned our affection as well because of her dare, acts of daring do and everything she mm-hmm. goes through, bless her. You know, she doesn't have an easy time of it, as does he. So we kind of fall in love with her as well as fall in love with the train. So... I think that's why this film works so well because it's got those, those those kind of strands running through it. So you'd say you have three loves in your life. Yeah. Annabelle, the train and this film. That's the one. <laughs> and I think I think from a from a queer viewer's point of view, I think it's really interesting because essentially he the guy at the start what he you know Johnny, the main character Johnny Gray, I know the names quite on the nose referencing the uniforms. Um but he's he's character arc essentially is to get this girl get this girl Annabelle to love him by getting on a uniform and he will do any whatever it takes to get on a uniform but that kind of goes by the wayside when someone steals his train um it just so happens that when someone steals his train he ends up having to get it back off the enemy um kind of ending a ending a war almost <laughs> or at least a phase of a war and then getting rewarded with the uniform and therefore getting rewarded with a girl so in a sense, it kind of tells the audience, um, you know, being betrothed to another person is, um, you know, or, or being being in a relationship with another person is important. Um, but, you know, there are other things important in life as well. So I, that's the message that I always took away from it. What's interesting, too, is about how the movie showcases his just absolute love for the trains. And it, the whole Civil War aspect 
doesn't even seem like it's really that much on his radar. No. Until he goes to visit her and, you know, the brother and the father are enlisting. And she basically says to Buster Keaton, you know, don't speak to me again unless you're in uniform. It's kind of like he's like, oh, well, I guess I have to go do this now. You don't get a sense that, like, he is, like, you know, flying the flag for the war in addition to his love of the trains. It seems like he's in train land all the time. He has no love of country per se. Mm-hmm. He he's he's not doing it for any kind of nationalistic purpose. He's not doing it because he's. You're right. He's not invested in the war at all. He just happens to be drawn into this, and so it makes me think of. Um, it made me realize actually rewatching it for this that I do have a soft spot for films where someone in ordinary life is drawn into an extraordinary adventure. And I know that's a lot of different films, but you do get that in the spy genre as well. Mm-hmm. So another of my favorite films involving a really important train sequence, uh, which I can't believe I didn't bring up earlier, is North by Northwest. Yeah. So you have an advertising executive who is accidentally drawn into the world of espionage and has to, you know, he's hapless for most of the story. Um, even, you know, you've got something like, I know you guys have reviewed it recently, but you've got something like The Spy Who Dumped Me, which is a really fun film. You've got people who aren't in the world of spying brought into the world of spying. And it's usually because um, of, well, North by Northwest, it's just a complete accident, a happenstance. Spy Love Me, it's because of relationship drama. So I, I think I like those sort of stories. Yeah, and you even think of like Notorious with Ingrid Bergman, yeah. who's just brought in because of her shame from her father, father yeah. um, being a Nazi. And then also I think of like Jumpin' Jack Flash, you know, that's yeah. a Whoopi Goldberg comedy, just about a, you know, kind of bored office worker who's brought into espionage. Like there's so many different angles for bringing in these outsiders. My husband will love you saying that. Oh, good. Jumping Jack Flash is his, it's his favorite film of all time. Wow. So he will really love you saying that. Awesome. I've I've heard from Anthony about this in the past. It, it always like I'm I'm always slightly confused that it is his favorite film, but I love him for it all the same. Um, well, Cam, over to you then, sir. You're the next one along. What do you think? This one I think just holds up fantastically well. This might be the best introduction to silent film. I can see why David uses it as an entry point because, as he said earlier, uh, David said, um, there are silent films that are classics that are a tough ask for a modern viewer to sit down and show. You know, I think of like The Man Who Laughs, which is an amazing movie with Conrad Veidt, but it's not one I would sit people down and be like, you've got to sit and watch this, you know, two and a half hour epic. This is the movie for you. Or you can watch, say, Intolerance, which you can see the impact Intolerance had on, say, the editing of the finale of Return of the Jedi, but that is a tough ask of someone. Watching The General last night, I was just so impressed at how easily it sucks you into its story. It's fast-paced. It has action scenes that are on par, if not better, than a lot of the action you see in films nowadays Mm -hmm. because they obviously didn't have the benefit of CG, which I'm not here to bag on CG, but recognizable CG, you know, the CG you can spot, pulls you out of the reality of a movie, I find. And that's something that's just not happening here. Like, and so... There are action sequences that, you know, you can see how they can lead to things like not just Jackie Chan, who I referenced earlier, but Raiders of the Lost Ark. The truck chase at the end of that film is entirely Buster Keaton influenced. And it's not just like an action film. It has two incredible action sequences. But as David said, it has the heart of like the growing romance and the character of Annabelle played by Marion Mack gets in on the action too. She has some funny bits of pratfalls. Now, 
it seems like some of it she wasn't really aware of when it came to like the water dousing moment. Mm. She wasn't necessarily uh, aware that that was going to happen. But nonetheless, she handles it like a pro and is both funny, works as a believable multidimensional character. And it's just exciting to see in action sequences. The entire movie just feels like maybe because it's only 80 minutes, just as perfect, like 80 minute story with thrilling action, compelling characters, a Buster Keaton performance that I think is really subtle and interesting. And I think funnier than maybe people gave it credit for at the time. There's a lot of like very deadpan shots of him responding to things that genuinely got a laugh out of me. And I frequently don't laugh my head off watching silent films. That's not something that necessarily happens too much, but I do think a lot of the comedy in the general works because it's contrasted by all of the stuff around it, which is, you know, the more serious, thrilling action. I think it's kind of like, in some ways, maybe ahead of its time, where they were kind of blending tones in this movie, which wasn't as much, you know, the case back in those days. And so, you know, now you'll watch a Marvel movie where there'll be an intense action sequence, and then Tony Stark makes a joke, totally normal to us. And I think that sort of kind of attitude is very much at play in the general. It's it's interesting you say you don't really laugh that much because that explains our conversations over the last sort of ten or so years. <laughs> I wish they were silent. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> but it, it, you guys have been sort of talking about it and, and sort of Buster's career and and people lamenting this film for not having him maybe emote some more. But this is and I'll get to my thoughts on the film in a second. But that stuff really worked for me because you know we all have jobs. We go to work and you know someone. It's, you know, like the old trope of the, the boss puts a bunch of paper on your desk and you go, oh, work to do. We don't go, ah, how dare he? We just kind of stare silently into the corner or just like, go, <laughs> oh, at the work we have to do. We don't overact it. So just that's. And when he's like seeing the train coming towards him, he's not like screaming, running around the carriage. He's just staring at you like, oh. And that's subtle, but that translates to me perfectly. And I, I, it, seems, it seems like it does for you too, too as well. And a lot of silent acting is big. Like they are very much playing big so that the emotions communicate to an audience. Mm -hmm. And he's going the opposite direction. He's pulling back. But I don't know how you watch a shot like him on the train where he's looking sad and being basically lifted up and down by the, I don't even know the train parts, but when the wheels are turning and he's moving along, being lifted up and down, how does that emotion of that moment not connect with people? Like, I just don't understand how they miss that. And it's just so flawless as well. Like he, yeah. he he doesn't like sell it. He's like, oh, I've been pulled up in the air. He just sort of, he just gets pulled up and down, and sadly taken off screen. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. Well, okay. So I had only seen one silent film before I did this, and I was not a fan of silent films going into this. But I saw it was eighty minutes, so I was like, okay, okay. Show me what you got, Buster. Boy, <laughs> impress me. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, boy, did he. Boy, did he. This, uh, this may be some of the best 80 minutes I've spent watching film in a long time. Uh, I, I don't think there was a single moment I was bored. I don't think there was a single moment I was looking at my phone both times. I, I was blown away by the action, by the acting, the stunts, the cinematography. There's so many things I could list, but ultimately it boils down to a thrilling chase film that I think you could watch again and again and again and find new things that you didn't see the last time and just be amazed that this was made almost 100 years ago. No, I just, I just don't think we need to. Sometimes there's a there's a classic there's classic films, even things made 50 years ago, 
and you want someone else to watch it and you almost have to kind of caveat it with oh just remember it was made 50 years ago just remember it was made 60 years ago 70 whatever i would happily show this film to someone without having to put any of those caveats in front of mm -hmm. it you know that you know this film was made as you said nearly 100 years ago if you were to put birth of a nation which i did watch and put myself through the pain Same. of you know it's a very traumatizing movie for its racial depictions and you know you you would and and not and not just because of that but because the the pace is not like a, a modern movie you know you'd have to put those caveats in there those disclaimers um you don't i really don't think this film needs any apologizing for its age i think if anything it can be appreciated more now than when it was first released i i would actually and it's something that's in my sort of like section but i completely agree because we look at what modern filmmaking techniques have done to sort of replace some of these things like stunts a lot of it's done with green screen composite work now as cam said if that ain't done right it really drags you out of it and this is just perfection and i know like take away the caveat of 100 years ago but it's it just shows you filmmaking has been very good for a very long time. And we maybe have lost the uh, the magic in a few departments. Well, audiences really respond also to scale done well. Like it can be more awesome than anything you can ever imagine on the big screen. Look at how people respond to Top Gun Maverick or to, you know, the new Avatar film. Some of the Christopher Nolan stuff as well, where it feels it's not just that it's big because there's lots of big movies, you know, a Michael Bay Transformers film. Once you get to the third or fourth one, they're still big, but they don't necessarily wow you or take your breath away. But scale done on a level where it achieves that kind of awe-inspiring effect really just clicks with people. And I think it doesn't matter when the movie comes out. I think the general there's scenes of this where it's just like, you know, a dozen stuntmen or actors basically climbing over these trains roaring along this track that it's just awe-inspiring or even a shot where it's Buster Keaton standing on top of a train that's going by and in the background you see all of these soldiers going in the opposite direction like that shot just by itself I just I have a hard time imagining most audiences not just responding to it in some way having kind of that visceral response I think I think some people if you put them in and sat them down and made them watch this film I say made but had them watch this film they may be having issue with the fact that there's no dialogue some people might just not click with silent movies that's that's a, a entirely fair thing to say but i i think anyone who enjoys films will enjoy the the craft that went into this and it's especially when you put a little bit of like of your brain power into it and try and think how some of these shots were done you'll be flawed because buster keaton's putting his life on the line many times in this film just to get shots that are not even that big like, just him climbing along the carriage. He could have fallen off and fallen onto the train under the wheels at any point. He is just going for it. And there's no special effects. There's no wires, folks. That's just Buster. Well, the shot they said that was the most dangerous was where they're um, throwing, like, the, the, the beams mm -hmm. in the way. And he's running ahead, grabbing the beam, and then trying to stand on the front of the train and basically clip the other uh, tie, basically, to knock them both off the off the rail. And when he was running around on that track, that was a real, like, if he fumbles this and this thing's too heavy, he could get run down by this train and that's it. End of picture. And I, and I imagine there's probably some incidents in that era of people getting hurt and stuntmen getting hurt because they, they really did go for it. But that that scene alone is, is 
amazing. It's a spectacle. I could watch that, and, and that shot he makes from firing, throwing one wooden beam and hitting the other one, it's like a one in a million shot, and we have it on film. Not only is it one in a million, but as it actually happens, the way those two beams move and leave the scene is so beautiful that it's like, it's not just that he got the lucky shot and the two beams went off, you know, flipped off the track. It's that it looks so incredible. It's like perfectly timed and wonderful. The shots are so well composed. Um, I mean, my favorite sequence in the film is um, it, it, it sounds so prosaic when you try to explain it. So it's much better, folks, if you just go and watch watch this. It happens in the first half of the movie when he's trying to capture the uh, the people who have captured his beloved train uh, by chasing them with another one. And um, what he's trying to do is he's trying to line up a cannonball. Oh, yeah. Although you do start, if you stop and think, you start to think, okay, he might destroy his own train here. But he's trying to perhaps destroy the track to whatever. He's trying to slow them down. So he tries to, this really oversized cannon that is almost like, I don't know, maybe there were a cannon that big, but it always looks a bit kind of short and fat and not a real cannon to me <laughs> but he's putting this cannonball in then he's going through the rigmarole of getting the cannon ready to fire and then just as you think it's about to fire the cannon i'm aware that this is a podcast but i'm doing the hand gestures because yeah. <laughs> i can't help it um so you, to you guys but the cannon then instead of pointing 45 degrees in the air points downwards and is aimed at him and it's him trying to get out the way and then i'm not going to spoil it because Buster Keaton does this sort of gag a few times in some of his short films as well. There's a sort of similar misdirection gag in my favourite of his shorts called One Week, uh, which if you've got 22 minutes, it'll be the best 22 minutes of your life on YouTube. Honestly, watch watch One Week with Buster Keaton in it. Um, and there's a gag where it's so basically it doesn't kill him. Spoiler alert. Uh, but the way it doesn't kill him is so funny. And you just don't see it coming. Um, so, yeah, that's... But it, that only works because the shots are so well-framed and composed. And your attention... What you said uh, just, Scott, I think a lot of time people's attention is so focused on the dialogue in films that I think sometimes they almost forget to read the images. Mm -hmm. Whereas these images are so well-composed that they just give you the right amount of information. If you're concentrating, they give you the perfect amount of information to know exactly what's going on at all times. Um, and I think that's probably why you almost don't need, there's no need for the dialogue um, because you're just getting that information all the time. And it completely, once, you, once you're in that moment and you're watching it that closely, when, when he does something that's surprising, that's what creates the humor. One of my favorite bits about that whole canon sequence, I mean, the tension of that sequence is so effective mm -hmm. when you are wondering what's going to happen. It's the whole, you know, Alfred Hitchcock bomb under the desk, basically. Yeah. Like, you know that that cannon's going to go off and you just don't know when. But my favorite little moment of that is when he's like running away and he pauses to throw a piece of wood at the cannon. Yes. And it feels like this very like spontaneous improvised moment that is so weird. But so amazing. It makes the sequence that much better because you have this odd little moment of him just like hurling this piece of wood perfectly. Like his aim is incredible. Uh, Buster Keaton really has fantastic aim. Nails this thing right off the front of the cannon. And I'm like, it feels like the sort of decision that you don't get in, again, I'm going to bag on CG, I guess, uh, not intentionally. But like CG has to be planned out and designed by the people at the computers. 
Whereas you can have an accident or a decision made on set that Buster Keaton had here where you hurl that piece of wood. And I don't know if that was in the original storyboards, but it wound up in the movie. Like it feels spontaneous. And when you have CG, it's hard to do spontaneity. And the movie's full of moments like that where it's a big, large-scale action sequence where you'd have to map it out to a certain degree for Buster Keaton to pull it off. But there's little moments or bits of behavior throughout each of the sequences that make them feel that much more alive. It's funny you say that about the 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 little objects and things. This film is very tactile. So, you know, you've got just basically people go around touching things, which I know sounds like a really basic observation. But there's a really good essay that I read recently online about how the Marvel movies, and I don't want to rag on the Marvel movies because I enjoy them for what they were, what they are. Yeah. But there's there's actually, if you watch a Marvel movie, very few people touch things in them. And that's because those things are not real. So a lot of people are in a CGI environment. Mm-hmm. Um, they might not even be shot in the same shot. It might be composited later on with another actor. And COVID, I think, has probably exacerbated that a bit. But they don't really engage with the environments because often the environments aren't real. And because that's a nightmare to then they have to do shadows on them and everything else. This film is incredibly tactile. Everything, you know, the characters are always touching things. And I, I agree with you. That moment is sublime because that's what we'd all do in that situation. If we thought we were about to die with a giant cannon, which we've stupidly aimed at ourselves. And, and yeah, there's a bit of fate involved and a bit of physics involved. but. Essentially, we're about to kill ourselves by accident. We're just going to do whatever it takes. We're going to, it's almost like he's furious at himself at the, in that moment. Mm-hmm. But also, he'll do whatever it takes to try and preserve his life. It's such a human moment. And it's almost like a throwaway gag, which you're right. It might have been improvised. I don't know. I know Buster Keaton did rehearse things exhaustively, like people like Jackie Chan do as well. And, um, uh, but, yeah, it's just such a human moment. I think there's so much humanity in this film. It's, uh, it's. I think one of the things that Cam brought up was interesting, and I didn't know about his sort of Fordville background because those those roots of sort of physical comedy and physical performance, I think, are really found in this film because it really is him. Every step, every movement is purposeful. He knows exactly what he's trying to do, even if it is off-the-cuff movement, like he, he has to react to something that's happened. There's a scene, for instance, where he's throwing logs onto the back of, of the train and some fall off. And I think he's just sort of reacting to them falling off and sort of getting annoyed, so he throws more. And that's the scene. I don't think it was necessarily rehearsed because that's physics and you can't really control that particularly well with a human being. But every single like movement just feels practiced and coordinated and effortless is the word I wrote down. He He is... A physical actor, which is definitely a thing you needed for silent movies because you didn't have your voice. But if there was like a list of the best, I'm I'm glad he's at the top of them because he he is a master of that craft. I love the bit too where the train takes off without him on it and Annabelle's uh, on the train, mm-hmm. and the way he like barrels down that cliff and then back up the cliff at how like messy it is. It's not perfect it's not you know a uh, physical specimen of an individual doing a flawless run up and down a cliff the way you would get kind of the action hero approach to that sort of moment it's messy it feels like a guy who's just scampering up this cliff to try to um you know get back on the train like it feels like someone who is making it up as they go along you know that sort of thing mm. 
I think that connects with the kind of presentation of masculinity which I connect with in this film mm. because he isn't, you know, Captain America or whoever. He's not so posed. He is all over the shop. And you're right, he had to rehearse those things, but it does appear really um, in the moment. And I think we'd all be, you know, in in that kind of desperate, those desperate situations he finds himself in repeatedly, we'd, we'd be all over the place as well. And I think that's probably why we find it relatable. I think if you're going to make a superhero comparison, he's Steve Rogers before he gets the serum. He's the, yes. the young guy yes. who's just not going to give up, who's going to do anything he can yeah. to save the day. Totally agree. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Independent podcasting, much like the spy game, requires considerable resources. Whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or of course constructing a top secret volcano lair, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right. As you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? DiCaprio's on the run and we're in pursuit because we are tackling the 2002 Steven Spielberg film Catch Me If You Can. Is this minor Spielberg? Major? Come fly with us and find out. And if that sounds delicious, then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spy But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy jinx. Well, uh, let's head over to Likes Territory. We've already listed a few, I think. But uh, David, something in particular you'd like to highlight about the film you really like? Um, I don't know. I've tried. I, I really like the structure of it. Um. I think the Mad Max Fury Road owes a big debt to this film mm -hmm. because essentially Mad Max Fury Road is two extended chase sequences. You've got the escape and the return. And it's this film doesn't really have a three-act structure. It has the setup and then there's the train being stolen and him trying to get it back. And in the process, he thwarts the enemies who were planning to burn bridges as they go. But they can't do that because they're having to run away from him. Uh, so then there's the middle section, which is the only static section. It's not very long where he sneaks around the enemy camp, which is probably the most kind of typical spy movie sort of section. Because he actually finds out that the enemy spies are planning to launch a secret assault. So he has to get back with the top secret information back to back home. So that's kind of your most typical spy movie sequence. But then he's pretty quickly back on a train and he's trying to outrun them who are chasing him. So it's very similar, I think, to, to Mad Max Fury Road in that regard. And I know a lot of people, when that film was originally released and since, have drawn comparisons with Silent Era. And there was even a black and white version of Mad Max Fury Road released where I don't know if anyone has actually made this connection already. There's probably an essay out there that has made a comparison of the general Mad Max Fury Road. But that idea of an escape and return and it being two acts rather than three acts, I think I think owes a debt to the general. Yeah. And it's interesting how like Fury Road kind of carves off, I guess, the epilogue of this movie, because there's like this kind of almost like. End extended bit at the end with the battle and Buster Keaton 
um, you know, warding off the other soldiers through his own kind of buffoonery, basically, you know, with a sword that doesn't work properly, that's broken, and what have you. But, like, people don't really think about that when they think about the general. They think of the train action sequences yeah. and, like, the big train yeah. crashing through the bridge, which feels like a big finale to the movie. And it's like yeah. Mad Max, I think, maybe understood that the point to end was the train collapsing on yeah. the bridge, which is the big, you know, all the semis flipping at the end of Fury Road. I, I'm happy to agree with the connection between Mad Max Fury Road and the general, as long as we can all agree that the father of Annabelle Lee's character is the guy who's on the uh, the big truck with the flaming guitar. <laughs> Do Fourier? Sure. If that's it, if that's the thing's name, sure. <laughs> that was it, yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah, fair enough. I'd never seen or heard that comparison, but it's actually, it's all there. I can't disagree with you at all. Cam, a like you have? Um, I want to touch on one thing David said just about the hiding under the table sequence. There's a moment of direction I absolutely love in that and framing where it's the looking through the hole, yeah, in mm -hmm. the tablecloth where you see his eye and then her framed in the hole. Like there's some really amazing direction. Like this is a really visually dynamic movie that I think will be very impressive to people who haven't seen it. And I did want to actually just show some love to that final action sequence, which is often overlooked. Just Buster Keaton's comic timing with that sword that keeps falling out of its holster. Um, the uh, the guys manning the cannon who keep dropping dead. And just the cannon firing up in the air that basically ends the battle. This sequence, I think, is actually very funny. And I think in a different movie would stand out much more as a centerpiece. Like, people would remember that action scene. It's just that the train stuff is so large-scale and unbelievable that you kind of forget about it. But it's very clear it had an impact on George Lucas. Because you look at Jar Jar Binks in the Battle of Naboo at the end of Episode One: The Phantom Menace. And that is basically that ending action sequence of The General accidentally killing people left right and center yep i didn't think this episode would have to be the uh the saving of uh, jar jar binks but here we are <laughs> there you go i think there's so many things i would like to call out for things i liked but the the one that jumps off my list that we haven't really spoken about like aside from the pacing the cinematography the stunts is the scale yeah I think this has some wonderful work with scale. I mean, we mentioned the armies running back and forth as the trains are going in different directions. That's wonderfully done. I mean, I read a little bit of trivia that apparently it was the same National Guard army just dressed in different uniforms running in the other direction, which I, I think is just wonderful. Uh, it, it's such a good use of manpower, and I can understand why this film costs so much because it's all on the screen. But, you know, there's stuff like... The train crash, like that is, I guess, maybe that's part of stunts, but also the scale of it all, the scale of the destruction. It's all practical, and you just sit there with your mouth open like, good grief, they destroyed that whole train and a bridge. Um, there's the, just the trains themselves. There's a shot where there's two trains going up a bank and the other, and Buster Keaton's train going past them. These are whole massive locomotives. They're not small things, and they're all captured beautifully on on screen, and it, it all looks real and practical. And there's like a physical, there's like a physical element to it all. Like you could you could tell what these things feel like in reality. I love Scott's excitement as he's talking about trains. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I can I can totally relate to this. Just <laughs> what you said about that. I lo do love that shot where, and I don't know why on earth you would ever build this in a real railway. But there's a section of track where it goes up in the air quite suddenly mm. and goes along like it's a tiny siding. But what happens is one of the trains goes up there and the other one goes behind it and almost nudges it off. The sh It's like 
it's like these trains are almost like children's toys. We, we know they're not. We know they are full-size trains in real life because there was no way to fake it in 1926. But the way they're moving is almost like children's toys. Whenever you read anything about filmmakers using trains, they always whinge about them being really difficult to work with because you can't be that precise with the movement. And it is honestly mind-boggling what they managed to do with these steam trains. It's so precise. It's 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 you. There are so many sequences where you, where you just watch it and you think, clearly they had really good train drivers um, uh, to be able to drive these things. But it is just incredible. I love the bit where they have the burning car that they put in the tunnel. Yes, on the bridge, mm-hmm. and like just the scale of that of this locomotive emerging from this tunnel with this burning railway car in front of it, like just yeah. is unbelievable and even a moment that doesn't involve a train but the bit where there's the fire on the track and buster keaton leaps over the fire through the hole and lands in the water down below that is like a stunt that like i want to see tom cruise try to replicate in uh, dead reckoning because that is just jaw dropping it's funny you should mention that because i didn't see that drop coming i thought he'd land on sort of the the you know the tracks and it would be fine that stunt, that, that, that little joke is, is then used again in the Pink Panther Strikes Again, or Strikes Back, or whatever that film was we tackled. Sorry, I can't remember the proper name. Yeah. But you've got Peter Sellers disappearing down the stairs after he's on the parallel bar. It's just, just completely out of the camera. It works beautifully, and it's done very well in both films. Yeah, and I'm sure um, that uh, Peter Sellers was a student of silent comedians, given just his age and the era he would have been watching films as well. Oh, no doubt about that. No doubt about that. Is there any other likes people want to shout out before we move over? There's a couple little small bits, like him being woken up by the pine cone falling on his head made me laugh. Or even just like the moment where he's, you know, trying to have a moment of romance with Annabelle and there's the two kids sitting on the couch watching him. And the way he does that little bit where he puts on his hat and pretends to be leaving and then walks the two kids out and then takes the hat off and sits down. Just little moments like that are what make this movie feel so special. Well, it's not just those little moments. I love the bit with the bear. Oh, the bear. The bear the was bear. great. The bear. I, I just... A real bear. My notes were just like, there's a fucking bear. What's going on? <laughs> I did not see that coming. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. It was beautiful. Okay, well, we do have to talk about it. And there might be, I don't know, the odd dislike in this in the bunch here. I, I, I'll throw it out. Uh, David, you first. Something you don't particularly like about the general. I wouldn't say I dislike it necessarily, um, but uh, the the ending, when I was a child, I didn't know the difference between the blues and the greys, the American Civil War and everything else. And this does effectively put you on the side of what we, you know, um, we nowadays identify as the less sympathetic side, uh, you know, the Confederacy. Um, that in itself doesn't this you know because obviously there are heroes and villains on both sides of any conflict that in itself doesn't you know cause me a a, a great deal of distress just because my own political leanings don't l- line up with with theirs so effectively i'm sort of rooting on the bad guys um but the ending where effectively he gets his uniform um and gets um to essentially join the army as an adult watching this film, knowing all about the context of the American Civil War, that does leave me feeling a little bit disquieted because effectively he's he's going to be fighting on that side in the conflict. Um, and, you know, all the way through, he's, 
he we've already established he's not really that interested in the war but he's going to be fighting on that side and perhaps he might even die in that conflict as well because we know that you know there were massive casualties on both sides but we know that ultimately his side are going to lose so for me it's a bittersweet ending but then again they're always my favorite kind of endings anyway yeah like I don't know that I have a dislike other than what David's talking about, which is like, it puts you in a kind of a tricky position involving the Confederacy. You know, when you're seeing Buster Keaton heroically charge forward, waving the Confederate flag, that is the biggest block I think this movie has towards new audiences nowadays. And it's something that's going to be part of a conversation. I'm sure when you're teaching this film or talking about this film, that's always going to have to be kind of addressed. And the movie, just because of the character, isn't a particularly political character, but like that symbol has so much weight in the US that it makes it very complicated. And I don't know that when I w watch it as like an 80 minute thrill ride, it particularly phases me, but it's a sort of decision that like it, it's a tough one to struggle with. Um, I don't know, like, did it have that sort of impact on you, Scott? I, I, it's interesting to say impact because I know what happened in history. So, like having him be on the side of the Confederacy at the start of the film, I thought, "Oh, this is interesting," because obviously this is made post Civil War, so this was a choice. They they determined this is the way they wanted to tell the story, but I didn't know that the story had been changed. Yeah, I didn't know that that was the sort of thing behind it. So that's interesting to to learn. I I was reading that Buster changed it because you know they were the losers in the in the war and so you might be sympathetic to the person who doesn't really want to take part in the war but is on that side and so i can kind of see his perspective on it i know where he's coming from and i don't think he's coming from a place of malice where he's trying to shine a light on the confederacy and say hey these are actually nice blokes and and, and you know if you look at their ideological standpoint i'd say they're not but I don't think I'm holding against the film too much. It was more of a curiosity that they went that way. But now I've had the full story behind it, I can understand why that choice was made. Well, and like the father and brother who enlist are not depicted as like wonderful human beings. No. So it's like there are characters that are seen as very, um, neg portrayed very negatively who are part of the Confederacy here. But like this was such a common thing in films and storytelling of this era, like the romanticism of the South and... You know, you see it in Gone with the Wind. It's in a lot of classic films. And it's just, it's something that we don't have a lot of time for anymore. But I can understand why it was happening in the 1920s. And as you said, Scott, they had lost. They were the underdogs. And Buster Keaton himself likes to play underdogs. Characters who have to rise above all the hurdles they're facing. And so I can kind of understand why as an actor and as a storyteller, he sees that that would work better for the story of the general. It's just that, you know, when we talk about it now, there's a lot of uh, yes buts or what have you when you talk about the movie that you need to acknowledge. It's important that we have these discussions because we had a similar situation in Operation Finale with Ben Kingsley's Nazi character who, who was humanized in the film. And we went back and forth on whether that was the right thing to do to someone who had taken part in such atrocities. And I I was not on the side of yes, and we kind of went back and forth. We even spoke to the screenwriter about it and his take on it as well. Very interesting stuff. I, I, I suppose this one didn't 
really paint the confederacy in a good light so i'm i'm fine with what they did because it was about a person who was sort of in that situation and he kind of ended up with the uniform he didn't really choose that path his his love meant he had to do it like he was compelled to do so because of societal norms and and you know we've all lived under those for many years and had to make certain choices due to societal norms as well and that's a tough situation to live in yeah and it is interesting that buster keaton himself was not you know he was brought up in kansas he was not someone who really had ties to the south or the civil war or anything like that it was very much a story-driven decision and one that there was obviously criticism going on because of things like birth of a nation at the time but wouldn't have been treated the way it would be now if you were to make that decision that's for sure no no i think what you've just said about critique of social norms is key Mm. there's no endorsement of any um confederate ideology in this film um i mean right from the start you see him having to change his clothes um having to sort his hair out having to behave in the manner of a well-mannered gentleman when he'd actually probably feel more comfortable on his train. Uh, And I think even right, the very, very last shot of the film is him saluting, which is a social convention. If you're in that context, if you're in the military, while also kissing Annabelle, he's doing what is expected of him by society while also trying to do what he really wants. So I, I think most of Buster Keaton's films, I think a lot of the humour is based on satirising social norms um, and then breaking those social norms, usually by accident. So I think that's probably what he would want us to take away from this. That's not to say that the film is completely unpolitical or apolitical. There's no such thing. Every film has politics. Every film has ideology. There is, I think, just one shot or maybe it's two shots of um people who aren't white yeah. in the film yeah so there's and they 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 are shown at the railway station uh doing um all the heavy lifting essentially so you've got black people many of whom or all of whom we presume to be slaves so they are depicted in the film they're not completely removed from the film there are no black characters in the film but that they it does represent a degree of the reality of what the South was like. Um, yeah, whether that was whether that was to make a point or whether it was just because that was just trying to give some realism to the film, I don't know. And I mean, ultimately, the movie's using the Civil War as basically like a clothesline to assemble an action film. Yeah. And that obviously, you know, the merits we take from the movie are the action filmmaking and just how unbelievable it works as a Absolutely. story. But, you know, yeah. when you take a simplistic approach to something like the civil war and you have those black characters up front i don't even know if i can call them characters they're they're there on screen no they're basically extras you're basically robbing them of a voice but this movie is not interested in telling the story of the civil war or what the uh, confederacy was you know what they wanted what their ideology was it just wants to tell an action film and i think as an action film i can look at it as a shiny example of that but there's always gonna be that conversation with the general I think I'm 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 my my perception is tainted because I did watch it at such a young age mm. and had no knowledge of any of the things we've just talked about for the last 10 minutes. So as you say, I think it was just intended to be taken as as, as something um you know just just pure entertainment, but I think we 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 can't divorce it from that context. 
And if it makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable, then there's no problem with that. Yeah, for sure. I, yeah, I was my main dislike was the same as both of you gents, and it, it's weird to find a film I can't critique too much. But I had a couple of little ones I'll just throw out. Uh, I did want to say it was kind of frustrating that no one would tell him why he couldn't enlist, because that might have stopped the whole issue of the film. <laughs> yeah, uh, because he could have then told the parents, and then he wouldn't have felt like he had lost his love, and it all would have been fine. But I guess that's just filmmaking for you. Well, the movie wouldn't have happened if that had been the case. You also reminded me, so if you haven't watched the film but you're listening to it, it's because essentially they he's too valuable. So mm. um, so he does actually have an awful lot of worth to the society, but he walks away feeling utterly worthless and emasculated. And it's one of my favourite parts of the little micro moments of the film where he measures his own masculinity against the guy standing next to him. Yeah and start squeezing the guy's bicep. <laughs> so, you know, it's, which is, again, breaking a social norm, because generally men don't go around squeezing each other's biceps. But it's those sorts of things that I find so funny. You say that, but that's how I met Cam. It's true. It's true. <laughs> no judgment here. Hey, the, guy's, the guy's ripped. Don't worry. <laughs> and the only other thing I have was, like, you could argue it loses a little bit of its pace in that house section in the middle where that he's going undercover, as it were, as a bit of a spy. And I, I, maybe that's the, the topic I'll bring up before I start to wrap us up with the list, as it being a spy film. Because we don't often like take these things apart and go, like, is it a spy film, is it not? We usually just assume that it is and we talk about the film. This one has spies in it and there is spy work happening. And if there is an argument to say that it isn't a spy film, I'd like to hear it. But to me, I, I think it qualifies. I think it qualifies because to me, yeah, you're right. There is a spy plot that's introduced in the middle. I mean, let's, you know, the reason the train is stolen in the first place is so that they can pretty much pass through enemy lines undetected. Yep. The Union soldiers and destroy the bridges as they go. So they are spies. They're behind enemy lines. And then you've got this guy haplessly drawn into this world. He then gets secret information, which he has to get back mm -hmm. um, to prevent the enemy winning in this attack. So, yeah, it's got... And to me, it feels like a spy film a lot of the time because you've got people who are behind enemy lines, um, more, more so than it does a war film. And perhaps that's because the character himself is not like your typical character in a lot of war movies. He's more like a spy character. It just so happens that he's he doesn't really understand what he's doing most of the time. Same here. Yeah, I think the reason it... <laughs> the reason I think it gets a little muddy is because the Buster Keaton character is so, so front and center through the movie. Like, the movie is following him from beginning to end. And when we talk about a lot of the movies where you have an outsider, it's doing cutaways to other characters. There's much more of a sense of the larger spy world going on around them. Whereas here, it's trained so much on what Buster Keaton's up to. But I think when you, as you said, you know, you look at the fact that this is Union Spies who have you know, donned Confederate uniforms and are stealing this train. That's a spy mission right there. He is bumbling into a spy mission. And the fact that, yes, passing information, I think it all counts. It's just that they didn't really even know what a spy movie was in 1926. It's not like they went in going, you know what? We're making a Civil War spy film the way that even something like uh, The Fastest Guitar was thinking when they were making that movie. Mm -hmm. They knew that there was, you know, a popularity to spy tropes when they made that film those tropes didn't exist when they were making the general so i think it applies yeah 
Well, I, I think before we uh, get to the knock list, I'm just going to throw it out to any sort of final notes people might have. Uh, David, do you have anything else for us before we get to the list? Yeah, I I love the fact that the big climax with the train happens on a bridge because as well as a train fan, I'm a big bridge fan as well. Bridges in movies. <laughs> he loves a bridge. We need we need to we, we need to do an episode about bridges. I think we we should have had you for Bridge of Spies. That's uh that's in the mm. title there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, all right. Yeah, that's uh, it's a it's a nice ending and uh, a memorable one as well. Yeah, Cam. Um, I just have. I just have one moment I'll mention because we've talked about all the bits that are so much fun. But one we haven't mentioned is when he's on the push car that like crashes off the rail. And then we get that shot of him doing the flying leap onto the old timey bicycle and riding off. Incredible. That is a life goal right there. Crazy. (laughs) It's almost like a petty farthing. It's not quite there, but uh, I, I don't think I could jump onto one of those and successfully get away. But uh, that handcart stunt looks so ridiculously dangerous. Yeah, yeah. Which it probably, you know, literally, you see he's about to fly off, and can you imagine just being on that handcart, knowing there are no rails in front of you, and thinking which direction is this thing going to go in? <laughs> Crazy. No, there's no crash mats in this one, folks. He's just taking a tumble. The last note I had is, I guess I'd probably be a disgrace at wartime because I don't think I'd be the first one enlisting. Yeah, me neither. No, I think I've got other things to do. But speaking of other things to do, the train is pulling into the station. It's time to talk about the knock list. David, this is I think it's your third bat at a knock list film. I'm just trying to think of the ones you've done. Casino uh, Royale 67 didn't quite make the cut. Uh, no, but... Uh, I'm still bitter about that. But The Bourne Supremacy did. And that is the only Bourne film that has ever made the knock list. So you, you have a film on there with your name attached to it. So it's, it is all to play for. The General, is it making the knock list? I think we've got to put it on the knock list. I think we owe it, we'd be doing it a disservice if we didn't. I've never actually seen this on a list of spy movies before. So hats off to you guys for going with this. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, under your remit, really. Um, but I genuinely think it deserves to. I mean, what, what? I'm I'm talking to the experts here, but what defines a spy film is so difficult to pin down. Oh, but for me, it, yeah. it, it definitely <laughs> Condor Man. Um, it definitely. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's the one that I always think of. I think really okay. Um, but um, yeah, for me, it's definitely a spy film. Um, even. Perhaps more importantly, it's just a ruddy great film. So yes, on the knock list, please. Ruddy, ruddy great film. Yeah, love it, love it. That's one yes. It's all still to play for. Cameron, you're up. It's a yes for me, a big yes. I think when you look at the history of Hollywood action, and action is so integral to the spy genre, especially the big blockbuster stuff, the general is kind of like the beginning point. You have to include the general. I'm sorry, if I have Tom Cruise in Dead Reckoning trailers showcasing iconography from the General, Mission Impossible is one of the most important spy franchises we have. Clearly, the General is very important to that franchise, so the General is in for me. Well, wow. And it's interesting because you know, later this year, we will find out just how important it is, and I'm looking forward to tracking that. But I guess then it's interesting because... Um, yeah, uh, tracking? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, nice train pun there, Scott. I thank you, you. Thought, you thought you got away with I that. I thought I got past that. Nope, I got hounded down. There you go. Right. It's interesting because now my vote doesn't mean anything in a way, but I'm just going to lump on this uh, love train about the general. It is great. It is still 
easily one of the best films I've seen so far on this show. I am amazed by everything it does. I will watch it again this year. I will show it to people. I was so impressed with it. I'm sad that I spent 35 years on this earth without seeing The General. But I'm glad I can now share it for the rest of my days because Buster gives one hell of a performance. It, it just goes to show what you can do without language, without a voice, without anything like that, and, and portray on a screen successfully. And I think I think actors should be looking back to silent movies now for tips on maybe what they should be doing because I don't think action in some films that we've seen these days matches this. I don't think acting in some films we see these days uh, sticks up to this level. I think of, well, I don't want to say the MCU stuff, but there's been some spy films that came out in the last few years, even like the 355. Yeah. I don't want to jump on that particularly, but like recent spy films, I mean, they just fail on every single level compared to this. Yeah, I think of, you know, Without Remorse, for example. Like, these are... It's not like they're terrible films, but when you just look at, like, the level of action direction going on in a lot of them, it's very unsatisfying. And The General is a movie that it may be almost 100 years old, but the action still holds up. That's uh, that's your metaphor and your your sort of motto, isn't it, Cam? It is. It is. Mm. He's, still, he's still got it after almost 100 years. Uh, <laughs> but for those who didn't quite get the answer out of me there, that's another yes. So uh, three yeses as such. Thankfully and happily, the general is making the knock list. David has two touchdowns, as it were. Uh, congratulations. Mm. you! I think you are our most successful flyer when it comes to guests in the knock list, too. Wow. Wow. Well, I feel honoured. Um, and the best part about this is, hopefully as a result of this episode, more people will check out the general. You can, as I said right at the start, you can find this really easily online. There's so many different versions with so many different film scores. I think I watched the one with the Carl Davis score on it, which is really good. Uh, my favourite score, although I've never actually seen the film with it on, but you can listen to the score on Spotify and Apple Music and stuff, is actually a score by Joe Hishaishi, which Studio Ghibli fans will recognise the name. He's done a lot of Miyazaki movies. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yeah, there are lots and lots of scores for this. Out of all the silent films that I've seen, I think this one probably has the most scores written for it in the in the modern era. And I think I understand why, really. Lots of people just love this film. And so hopefully even more people are going to love this film. Hopefully. Hopefully, hopefully. Well, there you go. It uh, looks like the general's making the knock list. The dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. David Lowbridge Ellis, you beautiful human being. Thank you once again for being on the show. It's always a pleasure to speak to you. We'll have to do another real life meetup again sometime this year. But uh, we sort of briefly spoke about it at the top. But so you've you've told us what's coming up. But where can people find more from the blog? Find more from you online, and all that stuff, all that wonderful stuff. So the hub for everything is licensedtoqueer.com with two C's, like the spelling in the Timothy Dalton movie. Mm -hmm. And we're on Instagram and Twitter and very infrequently on Facebook as well. Uh, so reach out to me. I'm always interested in new contributions. In addition to the uh, hundreds of thousands of words I've written on there, there's another 100,000 or so written by about 15 or 16 other people. Uh, including uh, also podcasts and things with some of the people who've also guested on Spy Hearts. Mm. Um, so uh, definitely check that out. And as I say, if you are interested, don't hesitate to get in touch. 
I I cannot uh, sing your praises enough. You're one of the few people I think of uh, that I've met in real life uh, through this sort of podcasting world that I would actually go to for advice and consider a, a friend. So I I thank you for taking the time of your busy schedule. You are a working man and you work hard for it uh, to come and talk to us about a Buster Keaton film. I I can't thank you enough. Same here, Scott. Thank you so much. And thank you for working around my schedule as well. <laughs> that was really appreciated. <laughs> no, no. He's used to dealing with my schedule. But David, it's been a pleasure and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you, guys. The General, what a pleasure to talk about it. The oldest film we've ever tackled. Also a silent film and it made the knock list. What a, what a good start to the silent era. Yeah, for sure. Um, I need to track down a couple more because I think, as I said in the episode, there's only like one or two others on the list, but there's got to be more out there. There has to be. There has to be. But, uh, you know, as all trains do, they have to move on to the next station. Cam, what have we got up next week? Well, it's really interesting we talked about Buster Keaton and his similarity to animation in this episode because our next movie is going to be an animated film. We are going to talk about 2014's Penguins of Madagascar. This should be a journey. I mean, it's uh, we're speaking of our films, spy films, we'll, we'll figure that out next week. Um, I, I've uh, never seen the Madagascar films, nor this film, but I'm interested to get into the world of animations. Uh, I think the last time we were there was uh, Ghost in the Shell. Yep. So it'll be nice to revisit the uh, the world of spy animations. So there you go, folks. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to check out the Penguins of Madagascar and join us next week. If you liked what you heard on the show, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, Cam, just get in the burlap sack. (laughs) 